I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit about myself. This is partially about introducing myself, but the real reason I'm starting this way is because it's relevant to the larger topic that I want to talk about today. From the youngest age, I was a curious kid. I only breastfed for a few months because I was too distracted. All I wanted to do was look around me. As a toddler, I fell in love with the ocean. It was no surprise to anyone when at the age of 10, I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. In college, I majored in ecology and evolutionary biology with the presumption that I would become a scientist. And for my senior thesis, I spent a summer in Bermuda conducting an experiment about climate change and coral reefs. With this research, my love of ecology, environmentalism, and the ocean all came together. My intention was to discover ways to promote coral health despite climate change. I was one of a dozen or so scientists working on this question. We all knew that the coral reefs depended on the reduction of CO2 emissions, but we hoped we could find ways to buy time for the coral reefs until the politicians got their act together. Excited to be doing research that helped the world, I applied to PhD programs to continue doing similar research. It seemed like everything was going according to my life plan. Of course, that's not how things worked out. I'm not a scientist. I'm becoming a rabbi. I'm often asked why I made such a drastic turn, why I decided to quit my PhD program and become a rabbi. I usually say something about how I discovered I hate lab work. I love learning about science, but I hate doing science. And that, at the same time, I fell in love with the Jewish community. This is all true, but it's not the full story. The truth is, during the one year I spent in a PhD program, I fell deeper and deeper into depression. I realized that my research was futile. I could not buy time for the coral reefs. All I could do was learn more and more about how we, how we were killing them. I began to feel helpless, powerless, like my life had no purpose or meaning, like I didn't know how to move forward or how my life could ever matter. This thing I had been working towards in some way or another my entire life turned out to be something completely different from what I had thought it was. I was going to have to find a new way of orienting myself in the world. Ultimately, Judaism and becoming a rabbi were my answer to that crisis of identity, that crisis of purpose. When I decided to become a rabbi and I finally took the plunge and quit grad school, I completely shifted focus. There were so many new things to learn. I told myself that environmentalism would still be part of who I was, that it would be part of my rabbinic work, that I could do more to combat climate change as a rabbi going to protests than as a scientist. But mostly, I left the world of the first 24 years of my life behind. I barely read anything about climate change, and only sporadically did I do any environmental activism. Over the years, it's been six years since I changed paths, I occasionally felt guilty that I wasn't doing more environmental work. I would learn from friends and from Facebook. I would get little glimpses of how it was getting worse. 
but mostly I shoved all of that aside because the truth was I still felt completely helpless and powerless. Rather than feel despair, I chose denial and avoidance. So why am I telling you all this? I've had such an uplifting service so far, and here I am just bringing you right back down. Why did I choose to open my sermon this way? This sermon is for those of us who feel bombarded by all the terrible things going on in the world and don't know what to do. Whether you're concerned about climate change, immigration, gun violence, white nationalism, racism, anti-Semitism, I could go on and on and on. We turn on the news these days and I think many of us want to turn it right back off. Or perhaps we never turn it on to begin with because we just don't know how to deal. Now, I know there are people in this community who are very politically active. And if you're one of those people, I applaud you. We need you. But if, like me, you vacillate between despair and denial, I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to tell you that you should be doing more. For the rest of this sermon, I want to explore what Rosh Hashanah has to teach us and what the whole high holiday cycle has to teach us about how we move from grief and hopelessness and powerlessness and denial to hopefulness and action. In his book, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared, Rabbi Alan Liu, Zichrono Livracha, writes that the high holiday cycle begins with Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av, the fast day in the middle of the summer, seven weeks before Rosh Hashanah, when we commemorate the destruction of the first and second temples in Jerusalem, as well as many other calamities in Jewish history. A day of collective prescribed grief and mourning. This is where the high holiday cycle begins. How could that be? Rabbi Alan Liu explains, only by being willing to experience loss can we have life. This is the bet life always makes against us. Life bets that we won't be willing to endure the suffering it requires. Life bets that we will try to shut out the suffering and so shut out life in the bargain. Tisha B'Av has a hot tip for us. Take the suffering, take the loss, turn toward it, embrace it, let the walls come down. And Tisha B'Av has a few questions for us as well. Where are we? What transition point are we standing at? What is causing sharp feeling in us, disturbing us, knocking us a little off balance? Where is our suffering? What is making us feel bad? What is making us feel at all? How long will we keep the walls up? Will we turn? Will we let the walls of our psyche fall with the walls of the great temple? What might we see as a result? What deep wellspring would suddenly become apparent to us? Rabbi Alan Liu sees the destruction of the second temple in 70 CE as a psychological metaphor. Prior to that destruction, as Rabbi Jonathan mentioned earlier in the service, prior to that destruction, Judaism looked very different from how it looks now. Ancient Israelite religion was centered around the sacrificial system. 
our ancestors would bring offerings to the temple in Jerusalem in honor of holidays or as atonement for wrongdoings. After the destruction, that was no longer an option. Over the next few hundred years, a new system emerged, one that looks a lot like the Judaism we practice today. This was a Judaism centered around prayer, Torah study, and acts of loving kindness. Judaism was transformed. So too with us, says Rabbi Alan Liu. When we allow our protective shields to crumble, when we let the walls around our egos fall, when we feel our pain and sit with our loss and our grief, then we too can transform. The high holiday cycle begins with Tisha B'Av because the path to tshuva begins with an acknowledgement of our grief and sadness. Rabbi Alan Liu writes, the walls of our soul begin to crumble and the first glimmerings of transformation of tshuva begin to seep in. Our suffering is also from God. It is the instrument by which we are carried back to God, not something to be defended against, but rather to be embraced. So this is where we start, by embracing our pain rather than avoiding it. This is scary. It's no fun to feel pain. Is it really necessary? <coughs> Joanna Macy, an environmental scholar and activist, says yes. She has spent her, her career encouraging people to feel their pain, especially their pain about the environment. I think her work could be extended to include pain about other national or global issues. Joanna Macy explains, in American culture, we are conditioned to try to keep a smiling face and remain chipper at all costs. A lack of optimism somehow indicates a lack of competence. Feelings of despair are treated reductionistically as a function of personal maladjustment. But a critical shift happens when we stop privatizing, repressing, and pathologizing our pain for the world. A critical shift happens when we begin to honor this pain. This is especially true when we name our pain out loud in the company of others who also acknowledge their pain. Joanna Macy explains, once we stop running from our pain, we can ask, where is it coming from? Whether you are feeling grief, despair, fear, or outrage, your pain comes from a deep love for the world. It comes from a deep caring for life. And that caring, in turn, comes from a sense of belonging. I care what happens to this earth because that's where I come from. That's my larger body. I need the air to breathe. I need clean soil to grow food. I'm not just disembodied out there in outer space. Noticing that our pain for the world comes from a sense of belonging is an essential step, according to Joanna Macy. She explains that people fear that if they let despair in, they will be paralyzed because they are just one person. But paradoxically, by allowing ourselves to feel our pain for the world, we open ourselves up to the web of life and we realize that we're not alone. We are so accustomed to avoid feelings of pain, but when we numb our grief, 
we also disempower ourselves. And when we face our despair head on, especially when we do this with other people, we begin to reconnect with ourselves, with each other, and with the web of being that we are part of. This is transformative. The work remains large. The future remains uncertain. What shifts is how we relate to the work. Rebecca Hart, a therapist and colleague of Joanna Macy, puts it this way. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're alive and we're courageous and we know we're not alone. We feel renewed creativity and willingness to take action for what we love, no matter what happens. I believe this is another way of saying the following Jewish teaching from Perkei Avot that we've already heard today and yesterday. Lo alecha ham lecha ligmor, the lo atah ben chorin libatel mimena. It is not up to you to finish the work, but neither are you free to give up. When we feel that we are part of a greater collective, two things happen. We feel a greater responsibility to that collective, and we know that we are only a small part of the solution. It's not all on us. This motivates action because we care what happens and we don't feel the impossible task of doing it all on our own. The converse is this. Powerlessness and hopelessness come from a feeling of isolation and individualism. It is up to me alone to fix this. Said out loud, the statement sounds ridiculous. What hubris to think that any one person could be the answer to all the world's problems. And yet, how many of us beat ourselves up for not accomplishing enough? Or conversely, how many of us say, my contribution is so small, it's worthless. I might as well do nothing. This is what I was thinking when I quit my PhD program. Somehow, I had imbibed this idea that my research, by itself, was going to make a huge difference, not only for the coral reefs, but for humanity and the whole world. Sounds pretty ridiculous in retrospect. But then I encountered the reality that my scientific contribution was, at best, a small piece of a much larger puzzle. And at worst, my research wasn't even a little bit helpful. And somehow I concluded that because my research was pointless, I was worthless. That's a pretty big leap. I was worthless? How did I ever get that idea? Well, I grew up in a system. We've all grown up in a system that has told us that our self-worth is connected to our productivity and our perfection. When we feel unproductive or imperfect, we feel deeply ashamed. Dr. Brene Brown, who has spent the past 20 years researching shame and vulnerability, explains it this way. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Let me repeat that. She defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. 
To avoid shame, we use a variety of protective mechanisms. One common piece of psychological armor is perfectionism. According to Brene Brown, perfectionism is the belief that doing everything perfectly means you will never feel shame. Perfectionism means connecting your sense of self-worth to your accomplishments and the approval of others. In other words, believing that if I do enough, I am enough. When I realized that I couldn't fix climate change by myself, I subconsciously realized that I couldn't prove my worth through my research. I felt deeply ashamed, and so I distanced myself as much as possible from the issue of climate change. I turned my attention to other areas where I could prove my worth. But of course, the shame kept gnawing at me subconsciously, and I kept pushing it away, avoiding it at all costs. The costs were large. Because just like Joanna Macy says, I am deeply pained by the environmental destruction we are causing. In disconnecting from that pain, I disconnected from myself, and I disconnected from the web of being that I'm part of. So the work that I must do and that we must do is to acknowledge our pain and to acknowledge our imperfection, the ways we need each other. Take a moment to look beyond this tent. We are surrounded by many trees. Rabbi Arthur Waska reminds us, no living creature on our planet breathes in a little bubble. We breathe each other into being, into living. What we breathe in is what the trees breathe out. What the trees breathe in is what we breathe out. We need each other. We cannot do this work alone. During the high holidays, we talk a lot about returning. We sing about it too. Adonai, turn us back to you and we will turn. Renew our days as before. This verse comes from the end of the Book of Lamentations, the book chronicling the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in 597 BCE, the book we read on Tisha B'Av. So this high holiday season, may we return to ourselves, may we return to our sadness, May we return to our imperfection. May we return to the world we are part of. And with time, may this lead us each to act according to our desire and capacity as part of the larger social ecological system we belong to. Lo alecha hamlecha ligmor velo ata ben chorin libatel mimena. It is not up to you to finish the work but neither are you free to give up. Shana tova umatuka, good yantif, and aziz senor. <laughs>